Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Well, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and I'm privileged today as to have as a guest, Wes Markovsky. I've uh, followed his work for quite some time and uh, am just extremely excited about it and pleased to have him here. We're going to be talking today about uh, reflexive evangelicalism or the other evangelicals. And uh, I'm going to let uh, Wes, as we get into the conversation, uh, unpack that. But let me introduce him by way of some of his biography. Wes Markovsky is chair and associate professor of sociology in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Carleton College. An ethnographer and social theorist, his research centers on the study of politics, culture, science, and public religion. His really recently published work on American evangelical public and political engagement can be found in Political Power and Social Theory, Sociology of Religion, Religion in American Culture, and two Oxford University press books, uh, one of which is Good News for Common Goods, Multicultural Evangelicalism and Ethical Democracy in America, and the other is New Monasticism and the Transformation of American Evangelicalism. At Carleton, uh, West teaches in social theory, democracy and difference, urban ethnography, sociology of religion, and introductory sociology. That is a lot. Wes, welcome <laughs> to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, John. <laughs> well, uh, I want to let folks know this is the first podcast in a series that we're doing on evangelicals and intellectual humility. And the conversation you and I are, are having today is kind of setting the groundwork, the foundation for things that uh, are going to, to, to follow and the other conversations that are had in the series. We're going to be talking about the research that you did for a chapter called Reflexive Evangelicalism that was featured in Religion, Humility, and Democracy in a Divided America, uh, Volume 36. And, and the sources that we'll be talking about today, people can find the links in the podcast notes so they can follow up, and we encourage them to take a look at that. To begin with, what led you to do this research into evangelicalism and public engagement? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Um... The one part of the story is that, so I come from, I've spent most of my life participating in different corners of the evangelical world from sort of uh, conservative, evangelical, Baptist, evangelical free type places in my youth to more progressive, uh, uh, new monastic, intentional community uh, uh, other kinds of uh, communities. Uh, as I got older, I've been in Black Pentecostal and white charismatic contexts. Uh, I've been in uh, sort of seeker sensitive, like megachurch sort of spaces and uh, Anglican mission kind of church spaces involving evangelicals. So uh, I have a deep sort of personal interest uh, in, uh, in coming to this work, personal experience and personal interest in participating in really all many different corners of uh, what we call uh, American evangelicalism. Uh, and when I started graduate school, I had zero intention of uh, pursuing anything research related to that tradition or to that background at all. 
but I was doing a methods class my first year of graduate school. And it was sort of easy and convenient for me to do some interviews with this like really interesting sort of a new monastic intentional community that I knew about uh, in Madison, Wisconsin at the time. Did some interviews, did some work, uh, presented the paper at this uh, seminar uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, Sociology Department. Uh, and everybody was kind of blown away they're like, who are these people? We have no idea that this sort of thing existed. Um, they're politically progressive, but they're sort of theologically evangelical, and they're doing all this interesting work on racial justice and economic equity and whatever. Nobody knows about this. You have to pursue this further. And so I sort of accidentally started to move in the direction of doing more research uh, about kind of American evangelicalism and particularly uh, the other evangelicals, uh, evangelicals that uh, you don't hear about, uh, uh, you know, the, the the common narrative of, you know, white evangelicalism, Trump supporters, Republican right wing partisanship, that whole thing. It's a true story. It's important. That's the dominant sort of expression uh, of what's going on in, the, in, in with evangelicalism in the U.S., but it's not the only thing. Right. And so my sort of research ended up from that initial little uh, paper sort of snowballing into my first book and uh, now my second book and several articles. Really, I've spent the last 15 years or so um, researching uh, the other evangelicals, uh, multicultural, multiracial evangelicals who have a different sort of racial and uh, uh, political uh, profile uh, than the traditional view of what we think of when you hear the word evangelical uh, in public life in the United States. So. Well, the, uh, the answers that you gave to that first question naturally flow into the, the next question that I have. And uh, it's understandable now that American evangelicalism uh, is a pariah. It's uh, receiving a lot of criticism and uh, much of it is you know, deserved and justified. Uh, I get it. I understand it. Uh, however, the assumptions that are going with it are that this is American evangelicalism. It, because the numbers are so high for voting for, for Trump, uh, that, you know, all, you know, evangelicals are most, so it really doesn't matter uh, any nuance or, or any minority that might be in there. My hope is that folks in listening to our conversation and in seeking out your writing on the subject, that's not the whole story. So can you tell us a little bit more about what the thesis is that you discovered in your research? Yeah, I mean, there's... that That's a lot. I, yeah. To unpack. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. Uh, yeah, so you know the, I mean one one thing the the first book that I wrote about new monasticism so, uh, is a sort of deep dive into these new monastic intentional communities that tend to be politically progressive. They're progressive on racial issues, on economic issues, often on gender and sexuality, although sometimes in complicated ways. Uh, in that regard, um, you know, there's always been a lot of internal contestation and conflict and diversity within the field of American evangelicalism that isn't always visible from the outside. You have this, of course, dominant expression of kind of Republican right wing sort of uh, evangelicalism. It's associated with whiteness. Um, but there's always been this uh, sort of and continues to be this internal contestation and dynamism and conflict, even where dominant positions in the field absolutely tend to be conservative uh, in the ways that we traditionally see and that this has sort of gotten worse over time uh, over the last uh, several decades. Um, and so so there's there's that. And then the in the in the more recent work, um, 
kind of lifting up from the smaller, you know, the new monastic, these are urban, younger, progressive, often, so, you know, more highly educated, often kind of connected to arts communities or whatever, where you might expect some sort of innovation and surprise and uh, sort of opposition to dominant uh, uh, mega church or dominant conservative or dominant uh, Republican sorts of expressions of, of American evangelicalism. Uh, but in this uh, this more recent work, uh, this uh, second book that I have coming out, I'm looking more broadly at different kinds of multicultural um, evangelical expressions that also, again, don't align with the traditional white conservative evangelical narrative, Trump supporters, etc., um, and are doing all kinds of interesting work on uh, uh, racial equity and economic equity and uh, kind of reframing or uh, bringing, even bringing evangelical convictions into public and democratic and political life in a way that looks really different than the typical sort of pro-Trump uh, uh, right-wing uh, white evangelical narrative. And those people and groups are you know, actively pushing back against that narrative and doing so, though, not as, you know, we're, we're ex-evangelicals, we're leaving the faith, which a lot of people have and are doing, which is fine and understandable, um, but folks that are sort of staying within the fold and saying, look, like, this isn't actually true and authentic to our own evangelical convictions, that this sort of uh, this uh, sort of what we've seen happen in dominant expressions of conservative white right-wing evangelicalism in the United States. And again, this is in the United States, right? Because evangelicalism looks really different outside of the United States. Uh, um, uh, much uh, much more diverse racially and ethnically, much more uh, diverse politically. Um, uh, and so so this is a very much an American story uh, in terms of evangelicalism that this, uh, this association with kind of right-wing conservative stuff. Um, with, of course, expressions of that um, globally as well, growing in Latin America, et cetera. So you, you have you have all that contestation internationally as well. Um, but really saying, look, uh, the other evangelicals saying it's uh, this isn't uh, how we understand our faith, right? Uh, this isn't uh, the deepest and best uh, expression of what uh, a legitimate expression of biblical Christianity uh, should or ought to look like uh, in democratic public life. And so my work is looking at how do these folks uh, practice uh, their faith uh, in public life? How do they engage in racial difference and inequality? How do they think about it and practice different modes of, uh, of engaging across racial difference? How do they um, practice, engage different modes of engaging poverty and inequality, of engaging religious pluralism, of engaging uh, political uh, uh, pluralism and cultural pluralism, of engaging uh, uh, the LGBTQ community and uh, different understandings of gender equity. Uh, how do these folks, these other evangelicals who are um, both uh, sort of left-leaning or liberal-leaning white evangelicals and then evangelicals of color. Because again, when we think about evangelicals, often there's this reduction to white evangelicalism, right? Which again, that's dominant in the U.S., but there are, um, there are a lot of evangelicals of color who again have a very different kind of political profile on certain issues um, than the typical... Uh, uh, typical kind of image of evangelical when you when when you think about it in the U.S. So that's my work is looking at how do these folks engage in public life? How do they uh, talk about and bring you know scripture and particularistic evangelical religious conviction into their work? Um, how do they kind of contest these other ways of thinking about or being evangelical in the public sphere? 
and how do they seek to sort of build bridges uh, across uh, different types of difference and disagreement in our increasingly uh, polarized and uh, uh, divided uh, public sphere across you know racial lines and political lines and uh, uh, kind of cultural and moral understandings of gender, sexuality, other kinds of other kinds of things. So, uh, just one more question, kind of as a background, uh, before yeah. we talk a little bit about uh, you know what some of these groups are doing, these yeah. actual groups themselves. I think the assumption is on the part of those who are critical of American evangelicalism, as well as those evangelicals who aren't the other evangelicals that might be, you know, Trump supporting and that kind of a thing, is that these other evangelicals really aren't authentic evangelicals, or they must be far left, or there's just something deficient about them. Were you able to, in your conversations and research, discover some of the self-described reasons uh, that the other evangelicals were tapping into in their own tradition and their own interests as to why they were pursuing this way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, absolutely. A lot, you know, uh, a lot of people talked about, I mean, some of it depends on the context. When it talks about uh, engaging uh, kind of different understandings of racial difference and inequity, for example, there was a lot of talk about personal experience. So white evangelicals in particular who uh, said, hey, I grew up in this kind of white bubble, conservative, rural or suburban place, but I um, I got involved in this ministry or in this church or in this group I, that was multiracial and it started to sort of change my thinking. And then I went and uh, lived in this neighborhood and uh, developing relationships in the neighborhood and seeing um, the world, seeing my world from a totally different kind of racial lens uh, over time created a whole different understanding of racial inequality in the United States, for example, that then led them to go back to their own sort of biblical teaching, upbringing, understanding of the faith and saw all these sort of gaping holes uh, in how their previous communities had ignored or justified or um, swept away different expressions of uh, racial inequality, racial injustice in the United States and saying, this is ridiculous. Like if you look at scripture, we have this whole different narrative of what this ought to look like. Um, and so that kind of experiential learning uh, was often a very important part of people's um, sort of returning to uh, kind of recovering and uh, reframing prior uh, sort of biblical evangelical understandings of racial difference and inequality or of poverty, um, you know, moving from kind of individualized blame the victim sort of understandings of, hey, you're poor because you don't work hard or because there's some deficiency in your, you know, moral kind of framework to like poverty as systemic and as something that needs to be addressed systemically and that there's a sort of biblical argument for addressing poverty and economic inequality or addressing racial equity from a systemic standpoint um, and that this isn't just some sort of you know Marxist or uh, left-wing liberal sort of thing there's a lot of uh, evidence for this in scripture uh, uh, so folks going hey I can do this um, as an evangelical, right, as a sort of Bible-believing uh, evangelical and think about uh, racial and economic equity in systemic ways. Um, and uh, and so, so there's that. And then, and then the, the combination, right, of kind of experiential learning and then learning from scripture, where one leads you to go deeper into scripture, and then you read some more books and you talk to some more people that maybe you haven't talked about before, and you're searching, so you're a little more open-minded about, hey, maybe 
some of what I've heard or been taught isn't exactly right. Maybe some of it's right, but I'm missing some things. I'm, 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 and so there's this sort of openness and this search to returning to, to, to scripture, um, reading, you know, books, uh, you know, theological sort of uh, perspectives that uh, open up new vistas around thinking about uh, these issues. Um, and that combination of uh, sort of cycling between uh, experience and scriptural reflection and then action. You know, most all of the, the folks that I was studying in this, uh, in this new book, they were people that were really personally engaged uh, in some kind of bridging work, in some kind of uh, uh, justice work or some kind of uh, you know, whether community development or faith-based community organizing or kind of public service or uh, political advocacy. They were doing stuff. Right. And as they were doing stuff in the world and then doing stuff in the world with people who were different than them, uh, that challenged them in different ways and led them to um, kind of grow and think about uh, how do I understand my own kind of evangelical background and faith convictions and bring them into better alignment or conversation with what I'm learning as I'm engaged in this work with people who are different than me in the public sphere, uh, whether again, that's across kind of racial difference or economic or uh, kind of religious, uh, uh, religious pluralism or kind of political partisanship. So I have, you know, different, the, the, there's a similar story for the type of learning or the process of learning that happened across all of these types of uh types of difference and disagreement. So, which is, and it was, it's spotty, right? So some of what I will talk, I'll wait for this, but, you know, some, there, there, there's, um, it, it's not all, you know, you, you can learn in one area, but be resistant to learning in another area. You can grow over here, but still have a blind spot over here. Like all of this is very messy. It's uh, kind of real world, right? There's an assertive uh, experiential in scripture pill that you can swallow to, um, uh, to lead you on this journey and then to have you sort of um, um, engage across all these different types of difference and disagreement. It's messy, it's spotty, it's uh, it's partial, uh, but it is uh, even in being sort of messy and, and partial, it is real. Uh, there's real evidence of transformation, there's real evidence of change, and again, there's, there's, there's real evidence of, hey, there's an authentic way to um, be evangelical, to carry one's evangelical convictions uh, into public life uh, in a way that is uh, consistent with ethical democracy, that is consistent with multiracial democracy, that is consistent with uh, democratic pluralism, uh, that is consistent with uh, uh, the kinds of bridging uh, uh, relationships that we need in order to have a flourishing uh, uh, democratic uh, public and political life, uh, that you can do all of that. Uh, without abandoning uh, one's kind of evangelical identity or, or convictions. And that's what I was sort of seeing across the country as I was working with these groups in, in Portland and Atlanta and Los Angeles and, and Boston and uh, and so on. So, One of the groups that you uh, <clears throat> looked at and had conversations with, did research with, uh, uh, is in Portland, as you mentioned, yeah. and uh, it, a group of evangelical Christians uh, with new wine, new wineskins, led by Paul Lewis Metzger of Multnomah good longtime friend of mine, and they have been having these potluck conversations for many years now with uh, uh, Zen Buddhists from Dharma Rain Zen Center, again in the Portland area, founded by the late Kyogen Carlson. He passed a few years ago, but those dialogues have continued. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what kinds of things you discovered in, in looking at those dialogues? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, that was um, super interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, it's not surprising to hear about interfaith dialogue and discussion, right? It's a little bit more surprising to hear about uh, predominantly white conservative evangelicals engaged in this sort of deep dive uh, interfaith dialogue dinner series discussion with uh, across uh, both religious divides and then also political divides, right? Like the Buddhist community generally was pretty strongly left-leaning, a lot of LGBTQ folks, part of the community, um, the, uh, the, com the evangelical community was pretty, pretty conservative uh, politically uh, and theologically. Uh, and so that's a little different, right? You don't hear about that kind of work happening as frequently. Uh, and then it's really different uh, because there was also a, a, an approach to the dialogues that both sides held that was, look, let's not sort of skirt around the hard issues or try to find common ground in a way that like avoids touching on the places where we disagree or touching on the things that we find offensive, right? Uh, or frustrating or um, or abhorrent uh, in one another's views. Let's try to really engage through like the actual deep differences that we have and really like ask those hard questions and talk about those hard questions as it relates to sexuality, for example, or reproductive rights, uh, or um, you think I'm going to hell, uh, or do you think I'm going to hell, right? So uh, these, these kind of dramatic and intense and really emotionally charged, right, stories of folks having conversations across these really, really hard differences and staying engaged and trying to do it in a way that is, um, again, engaging particularism and engaging difference in a deep way rather than avoiding it. And that was sort of the, 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 the leaders of the, of the dialogue sort of really wanted to push into that. And so there was a saying, hey, we want to bridge these culture war differences. We want to try to understand each other better. We want to find common ground, but we want to do that. We want to generate these new kinds of town hall discussions and kind of pluralistic face-to-face uh, -face engagement across difference that we don't get when we just interact with each other through Twitter or uh, social media platforms or mass media in which we kind of reduce each other to our worst uh, assumptions uh, to really get to know folks right over time, but to do it in a way that doesn't skirt those differences and that is really attempting to be authentic in people's real religious or secular or moral convictions uh, while engaging difference and and at the same time to do so in a way that tries to find ways to live together, uh, to practice humility, to um, you know, maybe imagine becoming friends, uh, maybe imagine uh, doing some kind of work together on some sort of uh, uh, project that might be of common interest. Uh, uh, even while uh, we, you know, this, these groups, you know, remain their, or maintain their distinctive religious identities and their distinctive uh, uh, views on uh, important issues that are core to, to folks' identity. So that was something that was really interesting to me and rare uh, to see. And uh, so seeing how they did this and what were some of the keys to attempting to do this, uh, uh, I found um, a lot of overlap with some of the other groups around the country that were doing similar kinds of work um, in different contexts um, and the importance of uh, intellectual humility or social reflexivity and being able to do that work. So. Uh, you mentioned a few surprises just in general <clears throat> as yeah. you went through the research process and did your observation and all that. 
anything stand out about specific surprises or aha moments or or just was it kind of a general surprise? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, I think it's really that um, that second piece was the the specific surprise of like hearing individuals tell their stories of like, look, I'm sitting at dinner and I've gotten to know this. So this is a Buddhist uh, talking about uh, this uh, white evangelical interlocutor. Um, you know, we've become, I, I, I've gotten to be friends with this person. It's been several months of meetings, several dinners. I consider this person a friend and we're talking and like, I finally sort of am able, able to be in a position where I look at him at dinner and I'm like, uh, you know, what, uh, uh, do you think I'm going to hell or like something like this, right? Some kind of question. And then the guy sort of uh, laughing is like, well, I don't know, like I, my, I guess maybe like this thing. And then like, that's okay. The, the, these kind of person, this exchange are like, well, okay, you know, you'll, you'll, um, I forget the, the, the sort of exact quote, but something like, well, maybe you'll get it right. in you know, the Buddhist returns to the evangelical, maybe you'll get it right, you know, in your next life or something. And they have this kind of, uh, light, but serious, but um, uh, sort of tentative move into uh, um, uh, a conversation that is pretty loaded, right? And then how they as individuals kind of have the thing and then they process it after with each other and with their groups. Um, and are thinking about why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself in this position to have these like uncomfortable conversations, these difficult conversations, these offensive conversations sometimes? Um, and kind of wrestling, again, the way that each community sort of wrestled with that in terms of their own faith, right? So going back to me as an evangelical or me as a Buddhist, this is deepening my faith. And if I really believe in what I say that I believe in in these ways, it is compelling me to engage across these really loaded differences in a way that expresses love and compassion and humility and looks for kind of common ground and isn't about, you know, uh, the kind of for the evangelical side, like uh, talking about, you know, a great commandment over great commission, right? It's not about kind of converting somebody. It's just about loving and understanding somebody. Uh, and on the Buddhist side, like uh, this, uh, um, hey, if I believe just sort of uh, in kind of bad things coming out of ignorance and uh, this need for and this kind of universal uh, compassion and universal humanity. And so the way that each that particular individuals at particular moments, whether you're dealing with, you know, uh, hell or uh, uh, sexuality or whatever would sort of lean into the hard conversation deal honestly with their anger and frustration or fear or whatever as they're engaging in the conversation and then try to process it um, by going deeper again sort of into their own religious tradition and seeing them each sort of dig deeper into it and then pulling out and then coming back to the table and re-engaging uh, over time was very it's super hard to do um and it was it was a pretty extreme example of the way that particularistic religious convictions can actually create grounds for common ground for bridging differences for finding things that work that people can do together or a different kind of relating to one another across difference 
that can have some uh, mediating effects or countermanding effects against the sort of you know, culture war, polarization, reducing communities or individuals to their their worst tendencies or their worst views in a soundbite, um, that it actually worked, that it was effective, and that there was um, real sort of transformation and humility happening and real bridging happening. And of course, there are limits to all of that. Um, but the, the sort of this really intensive extreme case of uh, Again, the way that uh, you, the, 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 the dialogues worked not because um, people hid or submerged or avoided uh, these particularistic differences, religious convictions or otherwise. Uh, they, they worked because the groups went really deep into their traditions and engaged from those places. And that's kind of what sustained and kept the, kept the thing moving. So that was, to me, what was the most um sort of surprising in some ways powerful often and confirming of this uh kind of broader argument that um evangelicals or buddhists or orthodox muslims or any that that we need to rethink um our broader public spaces in a way that makes room for people to bring in particularistic religious convictions and to engage them deeply and that it's possible to do that in a way that doesn't tear us apart uh, in different kinds of tribal, polarized, religious, or other kinds of politics, that actually there's a way to uh, bring deep, particularistic, religious, and other kinds of convictions into to bear in public life um, that still um, advances or supports uh, ethical democracy and the kinds of uh, uh, the kinds of relationships that we need to have in order to have a more flourishing, uh, more flourishing public life in the U.S. So, just to kind of circle to uh, your conclusion, you know, again, we we mentioned the assumption is understandably so that evangelicals with these strong convictions, they're they're just not interested in, in empathy or intellectual humility and all that. But you're saying through your research that you found something counter to that. Um, Am I understanding your conclusions correctly? And do you have any feel for, uh, I've been able through Multi-Faith Matters to put together a small network as we find them of evangelicals doing this kind of thing with Muslims and, and Buddhists and pagans and all kinds of different groups. Do you have a feeling for, again, what are the conclusions and what what numbers of evangelicals are we talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, in terms of numbers, I'm a qualitative uh, sociologist, ethnographer. I don't do that work myself. Um, more broadly, in terms of, you know, if you're looking at evangelicals of color and then like liberal leaning or left leaning white evangelicals, just in general, not those that are engaged in the kind of work that we just described, but those groups kind of as you look at survey data and such, uh, evangelicals of color. Uh, and kind of what liberal leaning white evangelicals, this is like almost half of the total number of evangelicals in the United States. And of course, not all of those people or groups are practicing the sort of intellectual humility and re social reflexivity that I found in the liberal Buddhist dialogue and in other, uh, other contexts across the United States. But it does, again, the, the numbers, there's a much bigger number of evangelical American evangelicals that don't fit the automatic right-wing pro-Trump, you know, conservative uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, evangelical uh, uh, frame, right? So that's the kind of big picture numbers thing. 
kind of zooming down to to up close like yes um what i found with the in my own ethnographic research with groups across the country was a lot of churches organizations individuals groups doing this kind of work uh engaging across different kinds of difference and different disagreement uh, whether it's religious or uh lgbtq uh, communities or um uh, racial, uh, uh, racial uh, inequity, uh, racial differences in multiracial groups, uh, different attempts to um, sort of engage across partisan political divides. A lot of evangelicals uh, involved in this kind of work and a lot of them finding success in similar ways to the way that the liberal Buddha or the Buddhist evangelical dialogue happened where the success wasn't coming from folks stopping, you know, kind of abandoning their religious identity or tapping down um, their sort of evangelical convictions in different ways. It was more finding different ways to, um, they, they, were, they were living out a different view of what those evangelical uh, religious convictions are in public life in ways that allowed for this kind of, um, bridging across difference, this kind of intellectual humility, this kind of uh, what I call transposable and deep social reflexivity in which uh, there's an ability to be self-critical and flexible in relation to diverse social others and situations across a broad category of, of spectrum. And again, like that are that are really deeply rooted in scripture, right? So you have all of these evangelical doctrines that are that are mainstream, that are classical, that sort of point to this kind of intellectual humility, that point to this kind of uh, reflexivity. So just the doctrine of you know sin and the fall and human weakness, right? That uh uh, we ought not trust ourselves that, you know, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, uh, of don't judge those who are outside, judge those who are inside, you know, the people that, uh, who, who do we judge most? We judge ourselves, right? Uh, I'm the most, uh, I'm the person who requires the greatest intellectual or moral, uh, um, uh, scrutiny, uh, right? Uh, not that other person, me, uh, which generates this sort of ongoing loop of, uh, of self, uh, self, uh, of confession, of repentance, of self-examination, um, that's really deeply rooted in the evangelical tradition. Uh, this understanding of the fall, right? That all of our sort of faculties of uh, uh, what we know, what we know about ourselves, what we know about God, uh, how we act in the world are all fallen, right? We see through a glass darkly. Uh, and there's these different, um, uh, which again points to humility, right? Uh, you don't uh, think of yourself greater than others. You have the the doctrine of the incarnation, right? Philippians two and kenosis and the self emptying of God uh, in uh, the person of Jesus Christ and uh, this uh, this uh, push towards humility uh, in Philippians two. So you have all these kind of core classic evangelical doctrines that all sort of point in the direction of a really deep and radical self-examination, a really deep and radical humility, a really deep and radical kind of understanding of the limits of one's own goodness or knowledge, and uh, sort of openness to uh, letting God judge and uh, finding ways to, if it is at all possible, live at peace with one another, right? All of these resources within scripture, which for evangelicals, right, this is the highest, uh, the highest authority, uh, of uh, of uh, of one's faith of how to live out one's faith um, that are that are really deeply rooted and I saw you know across the country uh, these different groups of evangelicals uh, drawing on those resources 
as guides for how to engage in kind of democratic public life and how to engage in uh, uh, across uh, different kinds of difference and disagreement in ways that were often effective. Um, and again, it looked very, very different uh, than, uh, than the kind of modal dominant expression of, uh, again, what, uh, of, uh, of uh, what we imagine uh, conservative, what we imagine evangelicalism uh, come white conservative evangelicalism uh, to be. Uh, one last question for you, Wes, just, and if you don't haven't, if this just doesn't register, or you don't have any thoughts on it, I'm going to be asking, this series will also include some conversations with social psychologists who are specialized in the study of intellectual humility, so that we can understand the science behind it and what's going on. That has obviously been uh, in practice amongst the evangelicals and the Buddhists as well. Um, but the way it tends to be defined in the, the psychological literature, I've got a stack of journal articles that I'm still wading through and books and so on. It tends to be defined primarily in terms of a cognitive intellectual process, uh, openness to being wrong, this kind of a thing. And I, I appreciate all that. However, practicing this myself and, and knowing folks like uh, New Wine and what they're doing and other groups across the United States that I've had conversations and then studies myself with, it seems to me that they, they aren't so much going into these conversations saying, you know what, I could be wrong and I want to find out. It's, it's almost more of a humble confidence. That is that they, they have their convictions, whether it's the evangelicals or the Buddhists, but this confidence is also open at the same time. It does, it's not defensive. It's not closed off. It's open to the other and then through the course of the relationship and conversations, they may in fact discover, hey, I was wrong in, in the perception I had about this, but it's not a going into it, I could be wrong and let me find out if I am or not. What, would you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So um, there's this combination of conviction and humility, right, uh, together, or like open conviction, as you said. And I, I think that's exactly right. That's very much what I observed uh, as well. And that's also where... I'd say in addition to that, there's, as a sociologist, right, uh, coming at the question of intellectual humility, you know, we think about context, right? It's not just uh, individual traits that people have in their heads and carry around with them durably everywhere. What I found is that um, this idea of segmented reflexivity, right? So you can practice this sort of uh, humility or reflexivity across one type of social difference, uh, but not practice it across, across another type of social difference. So thinking about the, the context in which intellectual humility is practiced matters, uh, and it's different contexts can sort of draw forth or not draw forth um, that practice. And also those practices can sort of what an individual can practice them in one particular context or social setting, but then not practice them uh, in another context or social setting. So the, the social context in which uh, these interactions happen and the type of difference or disagreements that being engaged uh, makes a difference uh, in whether an individual or a group practices intellectual humility or not in a given setting. So that can, it's not so much of a, it's more of an expanding of the idea of intellectual humility beyond just individual cognitive, I'm coming into this to be, you know, assuming I'm wrong or looking for ways that I'm wrong, uh, this combination of conviction and humility, but then also the way that uh, context uh, matters in how that um, is expressed uh, is something that I found and talk a lot about uh, in the book and the ways that uh, different individuals and groups are able to 
sort of engage that process in order to practice what I call transposable reflexivity, where they're they're doing that work across multiple types of difference. They're uh, able to practice humility across racial difference and inequity, across economic or class differences, gender and sexuality, uh, politics, and they're able to sort of durably move and engage across those different types of difference uh, with this same sort of combination of conviction and humility that is open, that is uh, uh, reflexive, that's willing to be challenged, but again, is coming out of kind of prior or strong existing convictions, right, of whatever uh, those might be. Um, and then others that are kind of able to do that in one domain or one arena, but not when you move into another arena. And, um, you know, my research doesn't answer the question of what accounts for or explains why, you know, one goes this way and one goes the other way. You, I can, you can make some gestures or, or guesses at it, um, but certainly um, there, there are, uh, um, there are differences in how uh, humility and conviction can be expressed across these different domains that uh, that I think this a sociological sort of approach to thinking about intellectual humility. Um, and I talk about this in the kind of there's a there's a, a Paul Lichterman uh, 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 did a study about kind of religious groups trying to bridge differences and he coined this term social reflexivity. Um, that I use and expand on, uh, which is, I think, the best sort of sociological parallel to uh, the psychological literature on intellectual humility. Um, and it, it it pays attention to context and uh, the different types of interactions uh, and in a way that I think is useful to add to the psychological approach, which focuses on, you know, individual characteristics and cognitive processes, which is also, of course, important. So. Well, Wes, uh, this has been fantastic. And uh, folks, I will you know, look at the program notes and there'll be links uh, to not only your website where they can find out more about what you're doing, but uh, the books and uh, the chapter and all of this and they can learn more. And uh, I just want to thank you again for coming on the program and sharing the results of your great research. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, John. Uh, this has been the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. This again was the, just the first episode in the series. Please take a look at the other episodes and Continue to learn more about evangelicals and intellectual humility, and we'll connect the dots to what they're doing in multi-faith engagement. I'm the host, John Moorhead. Thanks for watching and listening.